Romans chapter 15, I want to read verses 7 through 16. Hear the inerrant word of God. Therefore receive one another, just as Christ also received us, to the glory of God. Now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made to the fathers, and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, For this reason I will confess to you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud him, all you peoples. And again Isaiah says, There shall be a root of Jesse, and he who shall rise to reign over the Gentiles, in him the Gentiles shall hope. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. Nevertheless, brethren, I have written more boldly to you on some points as reminding you because of the grace given to me by God that I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Amen. Father God, we come before you, and it is our desire to tremble at your word, to not take it lightly, but to submit our hearts to it. I pray that you would enable me to handle the word of God carefully, uh, that uh, you would enable me to preach your word and uh, to not bring discredit to it. Father, I'm an unworthy vessel, and yet, Father, uh, through you, uh, we recognize that you can take the feeblest clay and that you can use it to your glory. Father, each one of us is but vessels of clay. But Father, we pray that we would be filled with the treasure of your Holy Spirit. And I pray that uh, uh, through him, through his empowering, through the merits of Jesus Christ, you would enable us to worship you appropriately, worship you rightly as we respond and interact and rejoice in and say amen to your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. This is number 24 in our sermon series on the foundations that we hold to here at at, uh, Dominion Covenant Church. And in these foundations, we've been looking at uh, the things that drive our vision, give us enthusiasm, frame our worldview, and in some cases make our church totally different than most of the other churches in in Omaha. And that's not always a, a bad thing because God, you know, sometimes will call a church to engage in one part of the vineyard and another church to engage in a different part. They're going to have different focuses and different vision. And so some of our foundations has been looking at what are the things that God has burdened us to specifically deal with. But that's not the case with the issue we're going to look at today. I'm sad to say this is an issue that really, I believe, is uh, facing the church with a major crisis where we desperately need uh, reformation. And I do not say this lightly. Um, I uh, in the past, was trained in psychology, and uh, uh, there are many areas of humanism that I had been infected in and have over the time, by the Spirit of God's illumination, been casting off some of those things. And I love my brothers in the Lord, my fellow pastors, and I interact with them trying to be a sharp uh, iron sharpening iron, and I've learned from them, and I, I'm seeking to uh, bring what reformation I can, but only God can accomplish this. But this, I have had so many times where people have 
Uh, I have seen people coming for counseling to me that have been damaged by psychological counseling, and I've had to undo so much humanism in the counseling office that I thought I need to preach a sermon, not just as a distinctive for our church, what our church stands for, but also to be as a warning, because not everything you hear on the radio and on the TV or in the books that you get in the stores uh, are, 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 are thoroughly uh, biblical. And in ages past, this really was not an issue because the church of the past has always had a confidence in the sufficiency of Scripture to provide all of the answers that are needed for the counseling situations and the sufficiency of the Holy Spirit to provide all of the empowering that is needed and the sufficiency of the priesthood of believers to provide the covenantal context and the support that is needed for God's people. And I have to say that is not the case anymore today. Um, just as the uh, Baal worshippers of ancient Israel integrated the worldly wisdom of Baalism together with uh, biblical truth, and they didn't think that they were compromising the Scripture. You read some of the Scriptures, they thought that they were being faithful to Jehovah. In the same way, there are people who are honest people. They're not willingly, I don't think, being deceitful on this. But there are seminaries, there are pastors, there are counselors of all sorts who have taken the religion of psychology and they've mixed it with the truths of Scripture. Now, some people might think I'm not being fair in calling psychology a religion, but it truly is another religion. And that's been admitted to by many professors of psychology themselves. More and more humanists are recognizing this is the religion of humanism, a secular religion to uh, replace the other religions that are out there. For example, Thomas Zaz, famous professor of psychology at State University, he also... Uh, is the editor of um, a, a prominent uh, a journal of psychology. He said this, Psychology is a religion that pretends to be a science. The human relations we now call psychotherapy are, in fact, matters of religion. And interestingly, even though he is he's not a, a, I mean, he's a humanist himself, he recognizes how utterly ir irreconcilable psycho psychology is with Christianity. Um, uh, he points out that uh, they are exclusive religions, and in one place he says psychology really is a religion that wants no competitors. He speaks, quote, of the implacable resolve of psychotherapy to rob religion of as much as it can and to destroy what it cannot. No, no competitors. Uh, Victor von Weizsäcker said, C.G. Jung was the first to understand that psychoanalysis belonged in the sphere of religion. Dr. Paul Witz professor of psychology, head of the Department of Psychology at New York University, has written an entire book demonstrating, if you want to pursue this further, demonstrating that psychology really is a, uh, a religion. He, he titled the book, Psychology is Religion, the Cult of Self-Worship. And so when Christians are merging psychology with Christianity, what they are engaging in is syncretism, uh, a mixing of false religion together with true religion, and they may not be doing so intentionally. They may be perfectly sincere, but the net result uh, is, the, is the same. Let me give you some other quotes. Martin Gross wrote, When educated man lost faith in formal religion, he required a substitute of belief that would be as reputable in the last half of the 20th century as Christianity was in the first. Psychology and psychiatry have now assumed that role. Unquote. Bernie Zilbergeld said, Psychology has become something of a substitute for old belief systems. Different schools of therapy offer visions of the good life and how to live it, and those whose ancestors took comfort from the words of God 
and worshipped at the altars of Christ and Yahweh now take solace from and worship at the altars of Freud, Jung, Carl Rogers, Albert Ellis, Werner Erhardt, and a host of similar authorities. While in the past the common reference point was the Bible and its commentaries and commentators, the common reference point today is a therapeutic language and the success stories of mostly secular people changers, unquote. Now, the reason that I am giving these quotes is because there are so many Christian psychologists who are saying, hey, it's, it's neutral, it's a science, we're just taking the facts that are out there, and these facts drive us to, uh, to these psychological conclusions. But, uh, you know, the problem with saying it's a science, and, and, you know, psychos is dealing with the soul, ology with the study of the soul, you know, the science of the soul. Science deals with what the five senses can measure, okay? The, what you can touch, what you can see, what you can, your senses can deal with. Well, you cannot see the soul. You cannot measure the soul. And the scriptures indicate that without divine revelation, no one can understand the soul. Scripture says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? Jeremiah 17, verse 9. And so it, when you're flying blind, and that's what that verse says, or you're studying the soul, you're flying blind, blind, you better have good instrumentation on your airplane and know how to fly it, you know, through the clouds. Uh, scripture indicates no man can know the soul apart from divine revelation. And so it's no wonder that psychology, which is not an infallible science, um, uh, is in so much confusion. A lot of people have the idea that psychology is a unified discipline and uh, nothing could be further from the truth. Depending upon how you count, there's over 400 different schools of psychology that compete with each other as to what the truth is concerning the soul of man. Or if you take away deviating branches, there's at least 250 different schools of psychology, each with its unique theology, own view of man, view of right and wrong, and its worldview. They are religious systems, and courts are beginning to recognize that there are problems, you know, with psychological diagnoses. I've kept record of some of the different diagnoses you get in the courtroom. And even here in Nebraska, you occasionally will read about it in the paper. But if you investigate, you'll find frequently you'll get two, three psychiatrists who will give a diagnosis, three different diagnoses, four different. You many times get as many diagnoses as you have as you have. Um, uh, psychologist, and it illustrates the truth of Jeremiah 17:9. Who can understand it? Modern faith in psychology is not a faith founded on fact; it is a faith founded on faith. Karl Kraus, a journalist from Vienna, rightly says, "Quote: Despite its deceptive terminology, psychoanalysis is not a science but a religion, the faith of a generation incapable of any other." Unquote. And I like that that quote because it's it's much like evolution. You know, people aren't driven to evolution by the facts. We were discussing, you know, in this table talk um, uh, thing how everybody has the same facts. Why is it some people think these facts perfectly fit our framework and our worldview and others think the other? The reason that they are driven to have evolution is not because of the facts, but because they need something to justify their independence. The only other valid interpretation uh, or that can make sense out of that is a creationistic one, and they don't like that. It does not fit. So anyway, this guy, in terms of psychology, says psychoanalysis is not a science but a religion, the faith of a generation incapable of any other. And so when you get Church A, who adopts Freudianism, sprinkles in some scripture, calls it biblical counseling, and then you got Church B that takes Rogerianism, sprinkles in some scripture, and then Church C takes uh, Skinnerianism, ad infinitum, what you do have 
is a denigration of the scriptures because people will look on and say, well, if this is biblical and this is biblical and they're all contradictory, you know, we can't really take the scriptures seriously. And what's happening is that psychology is driving the church. You look at the kinds of support groups, you look at the kinds of ministries, and even the preaching of the pulpit many times is driven uh, by psychology. But thankfully, there are Christians all over the world who are resisting this infiltration of a false religion into Christianity. They're raising a standard and they're saying, look, we've got to have reformation on this area. There's the National Association of Neuthetic Counselors, Christian Education and Counseling Foundation, Biblical Counseling Foundation, International Center for Biblical Counseling, and there are thousands of pastors who are calling for reformation. One of the first and the boldest testimonies was by Jay Adams, and he wrote a blockbuster book and... Uh, you know, obviously, he was a, a pathbreaker, and there's areas of, uh, uh, of development and refinement that needed to be made to that. But I recommend every person read Competent to Counsel. If you're a parent, if you're a leader, if you're a deacon or an elder, it is a, a great, great book. But here's the problem. Everybody thinks that they're biblical. I mean, even cults, you know, call themselves biblical. There's a, an, a huge association of Christian psychologists that have recently been sending me uh, their catalogs of different material. And it's just an eclectic group of people. Some of them are Freudian, some are Algerian, and some of the others. And I wonder, how in the world can they call themselves uh, biblical? Some of them don't even pretend to have the Bible in there. And yet they're, uh, they're, they're tired of the criticism from Neuthetic counselors, you know, of them not being biblical. So they call themselves now Biblical Association of Counselors. So what do we do? And what many counselors around the world have done is they've taken the word neuthetic to say, this is a specific kind of thing, okay? When we say it's biblical, it's got some content. We don't just mean that we are adding 5% scripture to our, our counseling or 50% scripture or anything like that. They say, no, all of our counseling has to flow from the scripture. All of our counseling needs to be dependent upon the Holy Spirit. All of our counseling needs to take place within the covenant context of, of God's people. And so our goals, our methods, our strategies, our tactics, our philosophy of counseling all flows from the Bible. It's not enough to have biblical goals and then to use pagan methods. That's syncretism. They may call it biblical counseling, but it's syncretism. Now, um, let's uh, take a look at your outline there. The reason we're using neuthetic to distinguish what we're doing from what others do. And the word neuthetic comes from the Greek word neuthetain that is found in the last phrase of verse 14, able also to admonish one another. Now, the word admonish is, is, is translated elsewhere as to give advice, uh, instruct, counsel, admonish, warn, reprove. One version has competent to counsel one another. And I like that translation. The, the Greek word really cannot be communicated into any one English term. Uh, the the English is, uh, and if you need an outline, notice some people going out, there's plenty more on the back uh, table. But let's just read the outline there. Point B, the standard. Here's, there's three legs here. The standard for neuthetic counseling is the scripture alone. Second Timothy three sixteen to 17 says that the scriptures are sufficient and more than sufficient to make the man of God complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. If we think that we need anything more than the scriptures for any of the following things listed in these verses, then we make Paul a liar. First word that Paul uses, doctrine. Uh, the philosophy of counseling. This deals with the, the doctrine of counseling. It needs to flow from the scripture. Next word, reproof. The methodology, strategies, and tactics of confrontation. 
every counseling method has strategies or has methodologies of confrontation. And what Paul is saying, hey, the Bible is sufficient to provide those methods. Okay, uh, correction deals with the methodology, strategies, tactics of putting off old behavior. Number four, instruction in righteousness deals with the methodology, strategies, and tactics of putting on new behavior. Good works deals with the biblical definitions and goals of mature behavior. Okay, so there are many times, uh, I mean, the, the world defines what is good behavior and what is not good behavior, and that's what all counseling really is dealing with. He's saying, this is sufficient to give the definition of that. It's sufficient to give the, the methodologies as well that uh, relate to that. Now, we don't need anything more than the Bible, according to this, to make the man of God complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, there is a place for medicine, but that doesn't deal with the study of the soul. That's the body, right? And the physician can deal with that. I work hand-in-hand with physicians because there are medical problems that people need to look at. But we're talking about a, a, a philosophy of, um, uh, of counseling. Okay, point C, the empowering for nuthetic counseling. The full-orbed ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer, Romans fifteen thirteen is made possible by our union with Christ, verse 7, and our position in Him, verses 12 and 16. Neuthetic counseling that bypasses this empowering will not be sufficient to provide deep-rooted victory over the flesh and the devil. So let's think about that a little bit. If a counselor is not a believer, he is missing out on one of the most important components of, uh, uh, of biblical counseling, and that's the empowering of God and the provision of God within us. So why in the world would a Christian who is indwelt with all of the power that he needs and has in the Bible all of the answers that he needs go to a powerless, clueless, pagan psychologist to get some help for his religion, for some help for his soul and his, his uh, appropriate walk uh, in this world? And yet Christians flock to unbelievers all the time uh, in getting psychiatric help. Romans 8 verse 7 says, The carnal mind is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. He is saying the unbeliever doesn't even have the discernment. They don't have the empowering. And so an unbelieving counselor is not equipped, and an unbelieving counselee does not have that empowering either. Otherwise, you're just putting a band-aid on cancer if you do not have the empowering of God to help. And unfortunately, there are some counselors in our own camp who claim to be neuthetic, and I think they are neuthetic, but many times who neglect the spiritual warfare aspect of, of, of counseling, and they neglect the importance of dealing with um, uh, the, the power of the Holy Spirit. If you just throw scripture at people and say, okay, here's the blueprints, just go do it, what you're asking people to do is to operate in their own flesh, and that just produces a dry legalism. When Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing, he meant exactly that. He didn't mean you can do, you know, a few things, but you've got to go elsewhere for some help. Without me, you can do nothing, nothing. Now, we've already preached on the incredible resources that we have in Christ. Ephesians 1, he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And we're responsible by faith to lay claim to those resources, to stand in those resources. And one of the things in Galatians that Paul is grieved over is that these Galatians were saved by faith, but they are not walking by faith in God's power. Let me read that to you. It says, O foolish Galatians, 
Who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Being made mature by the flesh? He says your flesh can't produce maturity, cannot produce the kind of sanctification that we are calling for. See, it's not enough to have the right standard. And that's what some biblical counselors have. They've got the right standard and they're throwing pe- things at people and they're frustrated as to why it is that people are not, are not changing. Paul warned against people who have a form of godliness but deny the power thereof. So we need to point the finger at ourselves, make sure we've got all three of these things in our counseling. Second Timothy 3, verse 5. And so whether you are a counselor or whether you are a counselee, you've got to have the power of the Holy Spirit. And then finally... Biblical counseling needs the covenant context of God's people. In verse 14, it was the members who were doing the counseling as well as Paul. We'll get to that in a moment. But one of the things I want to point out right here is that God did not intend for us to gain maturity and victory over sin as lone rangers. He wants us to do it within the context of the body where there is mutual ministry, where there is support, where there is accountability, where there is a kind of of love and, uh, and, and help that can that can get us through and i feel very sorry for people who get counseling over very difficult issues but they do not have the support of a body uh to help them walk through that and by the way you you guys are are key to success in my counseling don't think the pastor is the only person who counsels okay and we'll get to that a little bit uh, later now let's start to look at these two verses that's all introduction sorry to say um Romans 15, let me read those again. Romans 15 and verses 13 through 14. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another, or as Williams puts it, and competent to counsel one another. So there was Neuthetic counseling that was going on in this congregation. And that Neuthetic counseling, was he was very confident in that, it, even though it occurred long before Freud came on the scene, you know, in the early 1900s and developed psychoanalysis, long before that. Uh, Paul believed they already had all of the resources that they would ever need to be competent to counsel, and they did that in the first century. He says, I myself am confident concerning you. Now, that is a bombshell that needs to be thrown into every evangelical church in the nation. And yet modern pastors and members of churches have been so influenced by the secular thinking of our age, they have no confidence in the biblical uh, counseling. Their confidence lies in the expertise of the world. And uh, their, their, um, their uh, a compromise as a result is making them ineffective. Ed Bulkley said, If psychology is necessary to transform the human soul, and that's what it pretends to do, right? If psychology is necessary to transform the human soul, Jesus Christ becomes a quaint relic of religious antiquity, and the church must be recognized as an obsolete cultural vestige that man has outgrown. Now, why could he say that? I'll continue with his quote in a moment. Why could he say that? Well, it's because for the first 19 centuries since Jesus uh, was uh, has been building his church, um, you know, they, they didn't have psychology to enable them to counsel. They didn't have psychology. They were antiquated, hopelessly naive because all they had was the Bible and the Holy Spirit. So let me read that again. Ed Bulkley said, if psychology 
is necessary to transform the human soul, Jesus Christ becomes a quaint relic of religious antiquity, and the church must be recognized as an obsolete cultural vestige that man has outgrown. If psychologists can duplicate the fruit of the Spirit, sanctification is unnecessary and the Holy Spirit is irrelevant. If psychological counsel is necessary for solving the problems of life, the Bible must give way to the new Harvard Guide to Psychiatry. Pastors should sneak away quietly and find an honest job, unquote. And yet, what does the scripture say was the case prior to Freud and Ellis and Rogers and Skinner and all of these other psychologists? Let me read you some examples. Second Peter 1.3 says, As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. He is saying through the scriptures, through the power of God, you have everything you need to escape the corruption of life and to be able to live holy lives. Second Corinthians 9, 8 says, And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you always having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work. Do you think there could be any more superlatives put into that sentence? I mean, God wants us to have a confidence, the same confidence in euthetic counseling that the Apostle Paul had. And thankfully, there are more and more psychologists who are abandoning psychology completely, and they have been adopting euthetic counseling, and they have found the success rate to be skyrocketing. I've got a relative uh, who is a, a, a shrink, uh, who had been practicing for years, and he ran across some books dealing with nuthetic counseling, and he was just blown away. And he started implementing the nuthetic principles, and he told me, confided me, he says, my success rate just went through the roof. He's not even remotely tempted to go back to the humanistic methods that he had been trained in all of those years. Uh, he's just thrilled to death with, with uh, what, uh, what God has granted him. And so what's happened is he has gained the confidence of Paul in nuthetic counseling. And we need to pray there'd be a reformation that would hit the church of Jesus Christ, that it would return to the pure waters of, of the scripture and the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Now, what I think is the most surprising about Paul's statement is not his confidence in nuthetic counseling. I mean, for me, that's easy. You look at the statistics and it's like, really, statistically, why in the world would anybody opt for psychology unless it's, you know, a lust for academic respectability? Because the statistics indicate that the results, the comparison between the two is just staggering. And so for me, it's very easy to get a total confidence in the biblical methods for counseling or to say, okay, sure, the Apostle Paul, he can do anything. You know, he's, he's able to do that, but we need help. Um, but that's not what Paul says. Paul goes beyond that. He says something that should be a bombshell for every person who believes in the tyranny of the expert. Okay, let's read it again. Verse 14. Now I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren. He's not talking to the elders here even. They're included. But he says, now I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. And that's the beauty of nuthetic counseling. You don't have to have a PhD in order to be able to counsel effectively. And we're going to be seeing in a moment that there is maturity, there's sanctification, there's experience, you know, some training that people need to be able to counsel. And that church 
not only had it, they needed to have it to be able to be competent to counsel. But if you are a believer, you have all of the same resources that I have. You've got the scriptures, you've got the Holy Spirit, you've got the covenant body of believers to network with and to work with and to support. And the Bible levels the playing field, takes away the tyranny of the expert by bringing into four over and over again the universal priesthood of believers. Do you really believe that you are a priest? See, a priest always had a ministry that was working with some other person. A priest was taking other people from misery to wholeness, to forgiveness, to, uh, to, to a victory over sin. And I think it is very, very dangerous when a church believes that the pastor is the only one who can minister, that the pastor is the only one who can counsel, uh, the pastor is the only one who can be an expert in anything. No, Paul says he, he just does away with this tyranny, the expert. That's true. Some believers have more knowledge of the Bible, more maturity, more experience. And uh, they may be more effective in their counseling. But here's what I would say. If you study hard enough in the scripture and you're growing in sanctification and dealing with your sins, there is no reason why any one of you cannot become a better counselor than I am, even without being an officer just because of your relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the delights of my heart would be if we had a church that's just plumb full of counselors, uh, believers who are competent to counsel because they've worked their selves through, you know, the process of overcoming their besetting sins. And through the methods they've gained, they have encouragement in bringing counseling to other people. And by the way, some of you guys are doing that. You may not all realize that, but you've overcome a sin. You've worked through it, you've struggled through it, and then you've taken the blueprints that you've learned and you've gone off and you're helping other people. I mean, that brings delight to my heart and that brought delight to Paul's heart that there were believers who were catching the vision and they were beginning to be involved in one another's lives. But for sure, don't think the pastor is the only one who can counsel and for sure, don't think that a shrink's the only one that can counsel, okay? You know, one of the things that makes uh, experts intimidating, it's not that they are more successful than those who are not experts. In fact, one of the studies that I read was a fascinating study. It, it was comparing Freudian counseling, you know, psychoanalytic uh, counseling, and the success rates with people who, would, who had absolutely no training in counseling, but they were concerned for the individuals, and they just talked with them and just gave common sense answers. <laughs> And it was staggering. This, this should be an absolute embarrassment to the psychological association. So the things that makes them intimidating is not that they've got a greater success rate. There, there is absolutely no basis for that. The thing that makes them intimidating is their academic scholarship and that they have an ability to put you know, profound-sounding labels on things. They've got a humanistic nomenclature. A nomenclature is a system of labeling behavior and labeling people that enables them to control and to manipulate, you know, and to define these people and pigeonhole these people. Let me tell you something. The only labels that you need are the labels that are found in the Bible. Do not call, you know, stealing kleptomania. Because kleptomania, when you've redefined it as a medical term, you're implying... You're not responsible for that. You know, for some reason, you've got this disease that makes you go off and pickpocket, you know, and, and uh, shoplift elsewhere. Uh, it's not kleptomania. It is stealing. The Bible defines it not as a disease, but as a sin, right? Don't call drunkenness alcoholism. You know, one of the things that... Alcoholism, by the way, is 
it's, a, it's, a, it's more of a medical term. Drunkenness is a behavior term, right? One of the things that psychology has successfully done, and on the nomenclature, these guys are all unified. On how to, how to apply the nomenclature to people, they're not unified. But they're unified, and what they have done is they have successfully taken all of the sins, or almost all of the sins that the Scripture talks about, and relabeled it as a disease. Some of the sins they justify. They say it's A-OK. Homosexuality, for example, used to be labeled as a disease no longer. So what they have done is they have taken men's responsibility for their behavior away from them because I'm responsible for my sins. But, you know, am I responsible that I got diabetes? You know, that I got some other kind of sin? If it's a sin, uh, it, you're no longer feeling as responsible. That may be one of the reasons why psychology has become so popular. People don't want to feel guilty over their sin. They don't want to be uh, held accountable. But anyway, that's, that's rabbit trail off the, uh, the, the course. The main point I want to make here is that Paul wants every believer to grow in sanctification, grow in their ability then to transfer that to the lives of others and share with others and counsel with others on how they can overcome. And it's my prayer that not just our church, but every church in Omaha would be so successful in their sanctification, so successful in their counseling, that it puts every shrink out of business in this city. Uh, don't we want to put re false religions out of business? I do. And it is a false religion, the religion of humanism. We ought not to be intimidated by it any more than we'd be intimidated by any other uh, false religion. Now, the next point is primarily intended for elders, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but point four says that even in his capacity as an apostle, he was still content to use neuthetic or biblical counseling. He didn't think it was something beneath his dignity. So I don't want you to think that Paul is saying, oh yeah, for the naive, uninitiated layperson, you know, he can use neuthetic counseling. That's good as far as it goes, but if you're an apostle or if you're an elder or something like that, no, you've got to really go beyond that, and you've got to get some secular wisdom. No, Paul uses the word also in that verse to indicate he's putting himself in the same camp that the others have been put into. <clears throat> he says that you also, okay, me and you, you also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. <clears throat> More to the point, pastors must counsel. They must imitate Paul. <clears throat> One of the things that grieves me is how many people I have to turn away from counseling, because I can't counsel everybody, but how many people I have to turn away from counseling that come from other churches and say, my pastor doesn't counsel. And, you know, I... I have to tell them, well, I, I can't take on an extra load. You can either start, you know, attending and tithing here or $100 an hour. And I might have to raise the rates because there are people who, uh, you know, come despite that. But I put that on there so that at least the church could be compensated for some of my loss of time. But it grieves me to see so many pastors unwilling to counsel. And worse than that, that they have been trained not to counsel. I don't know how many times I have been to a church growth or a church training seminar, even ones put on by our denomination where there's some speaker or another who says pastors ought not to counsel. What they need to be involved in is more productive. Get a psychologist or somebody, but you need to be involved as a CEO in running the business, as it were. In fact, one guy told me I'm a bad pastor because I'm counseling. 
and I need to get into other... Well, I beg to differ. I beg to differ on that because I don't care how hard a pastor tries, there is always going to be counseling needs, and every one of the apostles said that they had counseling in their ministry. Uh, Counseling is an essential part of every elder's shepherding ministry, and without it, I believe they do not have the right to the title of shepherd. Sometimes I wish I did have less counseling. I've got 23 cases right now, and sometimes I only have two or three, but I would never trade it for anything because it would be giving up my pastoral ministry. In Acts 20, verse 31, Paul said that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears, and the word warn there is the word we use for neuthetic a council. He was neuthetically engaged with his congregation day and night for three years. Now think about that. If Paul could not get away from counseling, who am I to think that it's beneath me to be involved in counseling? If he defined his pastoral ministry as involving counseling day and night for three years, I think I need to define uh, my counseling in light of that as well. Pastors must counsel. I think they are being faith, faithless pastors. In Colossians 1.28, Paul said, Him we preach, neuthetically counseling every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end I also labor, striving according to His working which works in me mightily. And so there's the three legs of neuthetic counseling keep popping up again. He appeals to the authority of Scripture in his counseling. He appeals to the power of the Holy Spirit. He appeals to the the covenant body of, of God. And our church is committed to an eldership that counsels. And elders should aspire to counseling. Now let's quickly look at what Paul lays out as being the foundations for biblical counseling. Verse 13, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. The God of hope. Apart from divine hope, true hope, I think counseling is not going to be effective. People desperately need hope when they come for counseling. A lot of people are beyond hope. They've maybe got a flicker of hope. But you know the first thing that God did with Adam and Eve? When Adam and Eve fell, he confronted them. He was in their face about their sin. And the second thing he did is he gave them hope that their sin could be conquered by the coming Messiah in the future. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And those two must go together. If you minimize sin... What you are going to do is you're going to take away hope just as surely as you go as if you go to a, a medical doctor and you've just been feeling terrible for months. You don't know what it is. You go to the doctor and he examines you and there's nothing wrong. You go to another doctor and he examines you, nothing wrong. They all say it's in your head. And finally, you get cured, you know. Find, somebody takes it seriously. But that takes away hope, doesn't it? It's so discouraging to go to a doctor over and over again and he says, oh, there's nothing wrong with you. They've minimized the problem. Well, just use that analogy and apply it in the whole area of counseling. The medical model that psychiatry follows destroys hope because it fails to look at the heart cancer. And it's putting a band-aid, as it were, upon uh, upon the problem. And people recognize the problem is still, still there. That's one of the reasons why you have in psychoanalytic methods, you've got people going to these counselors month after month for years. It just keeps going on and on. You know, just contrasting for the same problems that usually take years in psychology, the average usually is six weeks of, of counseling. Now, sometimes it takes longer if people are not really highly motivated. But that gives hope to people as they begin to see speedy process of change in their lives being able to take place by the power of the Holy Spirit. In any case... 
my main point here that I'm making is that Paul sees God as being the source of true hope and joy and peace and faith. Why in the world would we want to encourage people to gain hope by going to a pagan counselor or to a pagan methodology of counseling? Why would they seek joy and peace from fountains that do not flow from God? See, even that can be very subtle, even with a pastor. Phil Kaiser cannot fix your problems. I am not the source of hope. God can, and your hope needs to be in God and God's methods, not in the messenger. Now, I've already alluded to the power of the Holy Spirit in counseling. Point C says we need his power. Point D says we need him to be a true counselor. He knows our hearts far better than we know our own hearts, and we need to go to him. He talks about, you know, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, he, can, he can help us to break through as a counselor. He can help us to break through as a counselee. I don't know how many times I have had, I've been stumped. You know, I'm doing counseling. And of course, Phil Kaiser is not able to break through into these things. It's only by God's enabling that this can happen. But I thought, I've uncovered every stone. And there's still, I know there's a problem because we are not making any progress, any success. And I say, Lord, I can't do this. Would you please give me the wisdom? You've promised in James, if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. And I ask the Lord for wisdom, and up pops this problem. The Lord uncovers it. See, counselors need God's strength. They need the Holy Spirit's working. Counselees need that uh, in their lives. And how many times have people struggled to overcome a problem in their fleshly strength? And they said, I've tried, and I've tried, and I've tried, and I cannot do this. And eventually, they just give up. They lose hope. Now, I'm, I'm a chief person in that area. There's so many things that I struggled through up into my early 20s, and I was struggling in my own strength. But, you know, whether it was dealing with sexual temptations or, you know, immoral thoughts in my mind. I remember for a whole year struggling, trying to cast these thoughts out of my mind, and I could not get rid of them. And a pastor told me, Phil, you're doing it all wrong. You're using your own authority and your own power, and Satan is not afraid of Phil Kaiser. You've got to use God's word, and you've got to use God's power in order to conquer them. Let me tell you something. If you're dealing with a stronghold in some person's life, if you don't have the power of the Holy Spirit breaking through, you're not going to get anywhere. Why? Because they've got blinders on their eyes. That stronghold is keeping them from being able to see the truth. And so we've got to have the power of the Holy Spirit breaking through in, in counseling and avail ourselves of that. Demons are not afraid of Phil Kaiser. They're afraid of the Jesus to whom Phil Kaiser is united. The Jesus, you know, with whom uh, Phil Kaiser is seated in the heavenlies. The Holy Spirit they are afraid of. And so we need to look to the empowering of the Holy Spirit and have confidence in him, not confidence in ourselves. The moment we have confidence, say, boy, you know, I've dealt with a whole pile of cases on this. This is a cinch, you know, we're going to get through this flying colors. You know your toast. <laughs> it just doesn't work that way. You've got to depend upon the Spirit. And that's where Paul's confidence lay. Second Corinthians 2.14 says, Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. Second Corinthians 3.5 Our sufficiency is from God. Second Corinthians 12.9 This is Jesus speaking. My grace is sufficient for you and my strength is made perfect in weakness. Now that didn't make a lick of sense to unbelieving psychologists. Um... In fact, that's one of the things that uh, many psychologists, when I was being trained in psychology, they, they were thinking, what are you Christians doing here? You're psychotic. Anybody that would talk out loud to something that doesn't exist has got something wrong with their brain. Okay? They defined us as being psychotic. And why did I go down that rabbit trail? But, um, um, okay. 1 Corinthians 1.18 
Oh, this is why I went down that rabbit trail. He says the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And any counseling method that neglects the power, the empowering of the Holy Spirit is going to be ineffective. So those are the foundations that the house of counseling needs to be built on. Any other foundations are sinking sand. Now let's quickly end by looking at the qualifications for a good counselor. Many people go to counselors because they've got secular credentials for counseling. They're licensed by the state. And Paul is far more interested in God's credentials. And you will search in vain in this passage or any other passage in the scripture for Paul saying, if you're going to be a counselor, you need to get a degree in psychology or you need at least to be able to integrate worldly wisdom with biblical wisdom. In fact, he does not even say you need the qualification of having a seminary degree. He doesn't care about the qualifications of man. He cares about what God qualifies a man as. And let me tell you, there are some people who are lay people who have never had a degree who are fabulous counselors. Fabulous counselors. I'd sooner go to them with a problem than I would to some of the pastors who have imbibed so much, who have imbibed so much uh, humanism. So, um, let's look at God's credentials. Verse 13 says that counselors need to be filled with certain things by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, let me clarify something here because people immediately will jump to a conclusion when they see a word or they see some kind of a phrase. And when they say, see power of the Holy Spirit, immediately what jumps to their mind is miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit. Uh, that's not what Paul has in mind in this passage. Certainly, there's that's power of the Holy Spirit, and you know there's usefulness for those gifts. But in verse 13, the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit is needed for what? It's for hope, joy, peace in believing, abounding in joy. How do we do that? It's by the power of the Holy Spirit. a pharisaical, superficial sanctification. It's not deep-rooted change that God is talking about. Apart from the power of the Holy Spirit, sanctification is not possible. We've already seen that. So don't be surprised and don't put people down when they've got anxieties and they're just, they're about going crazy with the things that are going on in their lives. That's the most natural thing you would expect when people are being impacted negatively by the world if they're not depending on the power of the Holy Spirit. So you need to direct them uh, to that power. What takes God's power is hope when everything seems hopeless in their lives. Is joy when they look around them and they say, yeah, right, right. What's there to be joyful about? Okay. When you have joy in those circumstances, when you have hope, when everything's hopeless, when you have peace, when your world is turned upside down, you're qualified to be a, you're, you're qualified to be a counselor. Why? Because you have learned the deep things of God. You have taken the supernatural work of God's Spirit and now you know, having gone through all those struggles, how to give advice to other people. You know how to work through that. So that's the qualification he is talking about. And I don't care how many spiritual gifts a person may have, he is not walking in the Holy Spirit, according to Galatians 5, unless he has, quote, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. He says that's what's walking in the Spirit. He goes on to say, those who walk in the Spirit's power, quote, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Wow! 
Now that's power. That's incredible. When people have crucified their desires and their passions and they are living to the glory of God. And so don't confuse this qualification with spiritual gifts. If you look at the book of 1 Corinthians, one of the things that you will find in 1 Corinthians is a people who had more spiritual gifts than any other congregation. You can find that in the first two chapters where he says they have, their, they have more spiritual gifts than anybody. And yet it was a congregation that was carnal. And it was a congregation that had high things that exalted themselves against the knowledge of God. Um, they had less fruit. They had less godliness and less maturity. Now, many times we quote 2 Corinthians 10, verses 4 through 5. What an incredible verse. It talks about the weapons of our warfare are mighty in God, right? To the pulling down of strongholds and tearing down of every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. And that was not an exact quotation. But you know the, the verse there. And we apply it to tearing down strongholds outside of the church. Read it in context. I think it does have an application out there. But in context, Paul was applying it to Christians in the church of Corinth who are creating absolute chaos with their spiritual gifts and who are being carnal in the way in which they functioned in the church. That's where he was using it. And he's saying, look, when I come to you, I'm going to bring this warfare. It's going to be spiritual discipline in your lives if you don't shape up. Okay, the point is that um, when you seek a counselor, you need to find out if they depend upon the Holy Spirit's power to walk their walk, spiritual empowerment in life. Uh, not just gifting. And so the second qualification is a moral one. Verse 14 says, Now I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you also are full of goodness. If we are not full of goodness, if we don't have spiritual maturity, how are we going to lead other people to spiritual maturity? And yet you've got all kinds of Christians willing to pay 150 50 bucks, you know, a pop to go to a pagan secular psychologist to help them deal with the issues of their soul. People who are not full of goodness. Now, Paul um, uh, gives a third qualification saying, filled with all knowledge. And it's not just any kind of knowledge, it's experiential knowledge. Um, the Greek word gnosis is more than just academics. It's it's knowledge of people who have learned to walk the walk. Okay, book knowledge is good as far as it goes, and Paul valued book knowledge. He valued scholarship and valued study. But his qualification here is a knowledge that is both facts and experience. And let me clarify what he is not saying. Paul is not saying that we need to experience sin in order to help people to get through sin. Many people have made that mistake. And I want you to look at chapter 16, verse 19, where he says exactly the opposite of that conclusion. He says, for your obedience has become known to all. Therefore, I am glad on your behalf, but I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. Should I be a simpleton? Should I be ignorant concerning how to do various evil things? Absolutely, yes. I don't need to watch pornography to tell people to get out of it, to get out of that bondage. I don't need to have experienced drunkenness to help people to overcome drunkenness. That's not the kind of experience he's talking about. In fact, I, um, I tossed it. I probably should have saved it, but I got, a, I got a, an advertisement from a Presbyterian who lost his church, a liberal Presbyterian, and so he set up a counseling center, and he wanted me to send my people for marriage counseling to him. And I don't remember all the qualifications, but the first two were he had a psychology degree, and the second one was he'd had three divorces. And I, I was just shaking my head at this, thinking, 
and, and then I read on, you know, why he was saying that. And he felt because he had gotten these several divorces, you know, he was in a position to tell people, you know, when it's appropriate to get a divorce, you know, and, and work through the pain of all of that. And that is not the kind of experience, okay, that Paul is talking about. He's saying, I want people who are filled with a knowledge of the scriptures, know how to apply it, know how to live it. That's the qualification he is looking at. Fourth qualification is that he be able to, he says, abound in hope. And we aren't talking about a happy-go-lucky person who's always looking on the bright side of life, you know, who minimizes the seriousness of the sin that he is being confronted with. No, we're talking about a hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. No problem is too tough for this person to believe that God's grace is able to, to, to take on. Now, I, let me give you the opposite of that. I know of um, a Christian leader. Be careful how I say this here. I know of a Christian leader who was training some pastors, including a couple of friends of mine, uh, for a doctoral degree. And in the course of that training, he very strongly said, don't even bother counseling homosexuals. Uh, it's a waste of your time. Homosexuals cannot change. Now, he had been involved. He had been trained in psychological training. And I don't, I'm not going to tell you his name. Don't even bother asking me afterwards because I don't want you to poison your minds to him because he's got a lot of great things to offer. A wonderful man. He's a reformed man. But he had no idea the degree to which his psychological training had framed his thinking on this subject. Psychology nowadays says homosexuals cannot change. He said no point in even counseling them. So he had no hope for this homosexual being able to get out of his lifestyle despite the fact that he's repentant. He feels grieves over the fact he's falling into the sin. So that man is utterly unqualified to counsel that homosexual. He has no hope. He's not a man of hope and he's not a man who can give hope to that other person. Now, in contrast to that, let me read you what the Apostle Paul says. Paul had hope for such people. In 1 Corinthians 6, he said, some of those Christians had formerly been fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, catamite homosexuals, sodomites, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, and extortioners. And he says this, and such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Okay? They were changed. They were formerly that, but no longer. Paul abounded in hope because he had an utmost confidence in the power of God and in the sufficiency of Scripture for, uh, for, for changes that were needed. And I think we must become convinced that God's methods work and God's power is sufficient. We've got to be people of hope who give hope because without hope, people will give up even trying. They will give up. Neuthetic counseling has been successful and even working with people who have been for years given up on by the psychological profession because they've run out of insurance money and they're just in the insurance ward locked up and strapped up and feeling hopeless. Uh, in fact, I read a fascinating study of um, uh, a former psychologist, now a neuthetic counselor, who was w working with catatonic schizophrenics and having just remarkable success. Supposedly, that's something you can't do a thing about. And, and so when people see these kinds of things, it gives them hope and saying, yes, God's methods work. I think I'm going to step out, you know, I'm feeling like I'm stepping on the thin ice and I'm going to trust God and I'm going to go forward and try to do what God has called me to do. So anyway, it's my prayer that the God of hope would make you abound in hope, have the same confidence the Apostle Paul did. The fifth qualification for a good counselor is someone who is personally involved in the lives of those that they counsel. 
Now, that can be seen just in the word admonish or counsel because it has in its meaning always this idea of empathy. Now, empathy is where you feel Joel here is feeling painful, and I feel for his pain, okay? I feel badly about the misery that he is going through, the bondage that he is in. That's empathy, okay? And, and, and as part of the kind of counseling that he is suggesting, not suggesting, commanding, uh, we need to have that kind of empathy. When Paul spoke of newthetic counseling that he was doing in Acts chapter 20, he says that he lived among them, verse 18, wept with them, went through trials with them, verse 19, said that he kept back nothing helpful, verse 20, he newthetically counseled them day and night with tears, verse 31. Now that kind of emotional involvement with people is anathema in most psychological uh, counseling circles because they say, no, this is, we need to be clinical about this. We need to have, maintain an emotional distance, a clinical objectivity, a professional detachment. And what Paul did with those counselees, you know, when he was leaving, that would raise more than eyebrows. Acts 20 says, then they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him. But you see, Paul as a counselor saw himself as being part of the body of Christ and he loved that body. He was committed to them. He was related to them. He didn't mind sharing his griefs, exposing his failures. He was part of the body. And Paul commands us, weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice. Romans 12, 15, he modeled that. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty five. who is weak and I am not weak, who is made to stumble and I do not burn with indignation. Okay, so he says the counseling needs to be empathetic. A personal involvement must, is essential. And finally, there needs to be some ability. Not everybody is able to counsel because not everybody is growing in sanctification. If you're not growing in sanctification, there's no way you're going to be able to help others to, to grow in there. And so the last qualification is able to counsel one another. Now, obviously, it wasn't the kind of abilities that professionals say that need to be there. Uh, and uh, here was a church full of people able to newthetically counsel, and that was long before you could get a degree from Biola, you know, College of Psychology or Fuller College of, any other college of psychology. Do a search on the web and you will find numerous Christians who insist you cannot counsel. You do not have the ability to counsel unless you spend years of humanistic training in some university. Let me just give you one example. Dr. James Mallory Jr. said, quote, the Bible no more presents the total picture of counseling than it does of nuclear physics, unquote. And then he goes on to present counseling as being as complex as nuclear physics. No wonder people give up, throw up their hands and say, I can't be involved. You know, nuclear physics, forget it. If it's that complicated, I'm not going to even try to be involved in counseling. And I feel so sorry for Paul and the poor Christians in the first century because they didn't have the privilege that we do of asking counsel and help from 400 different competing, fighting, contradictory psychological schools, you know, to help them in their counseling. And it is, it's an illusion to think psychology is a unified profession. It is a farce to think that it is. And so Paul is saying they had an ability because they were doing things God's way. They were being sanctified. Now, how can we gain that confidence for ourselves? First of all, you need to grow in sanctification. And as you struggle against sin, and you have your, your, your times of falling, but you, have, you finally break through and you gain the victory as you have applied biblical blueprints, you're excited to be able to share with a friend who is struggling, saying, well, here's how I overcame that sin. That's counseling. Counseling doesn't have to be complex. You are sharing the biblical blueprints of how you overcame sin with a fellow believer. Now, is that so hard? If you've, if you've been sanctified in some areas of life, you can share those things with other people, but it implies you're going to be admitting that you're a sinner, right? It implies humility that you're saying, look, I, I've blown it in those areas too, 
But here's the steps I took through. Now, maybe you've hit a brick wall. You've, you've tried and you say, well, I know the scripture's got the answers, but I sure can't figure it out. Then you go to a counselor and a counselor can help you work through and maybe even on written papers and things, you take through some of those steps. You work through that, boy, you're excited. You share that with another friend, say, well, if you've been having problems, here's some of the steps. You know, Pastor Kaiser took me through and, and that person is, is, uh, is helped out by that material. That's counseling. That's counseling. And, and, and maybe that person that you're trying to help through, by the way, there are people in this congregation that are doing that. It just thrills my heart because we're making a congregation of counselors, okay? But maybe that guy is up against a brick wall. You don't have to be embarrassed and say, well, I, I just don't know what to do. I mean, that helped me. Maybe there's other steps. You go get counseling. But probably more times than not, what you have shared with that individual is going to be sufficient where he's going to lick that problem. He never has to come to me. Why? Because we've got a congregation able to nuthetically counsel uh, one another. Second uh, Corinthians 1 4 says, who comforts us in all our tribulation that we may be able to comfort those who are in trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. What's the pattern? Here's a person undergoing tribulation and he is stressed out. He feels like he's going to go crazy. He doesn't know how to deal with his anxieties. And he has been helped with the comfort of God to have that peace that passes all understanding. And so he has a brother that's going through anxiety. And he's comforting him with the same comfort that he received. Or he's had some lust. And uh, maybe he's worked through the process. And he's gotten to the point where he no longer has problems in his mind with thinking impure thoughts. Because God's methods have completely cleared his mind of impurities. By the way, that's possible. Psychological approach, say, that's not possible. It is possible by the power of the Holy Spirit. So he goes and he shares it with others. And brothers and sisters, I want you to be involved in this kind of counseling. It's my prayer that this church and all of the churches, every evangelical church would have such success in sanctification and such success in neuthetic counseling, admonition, exhortation, encouragement, warning, whatever that is needed, that we would put every psychologist in this city out of business. Now, let me read the conclusion in your outlines and then we'll pray. Conclusion. Psychology can never provide all joy and peace in believing or enable people to abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Verse 13. Eventually, the emptiness and powerlessness of the religion of psychology will be exposed for the hoax that it is. Neuthetic counseling is gaining more and more adherence and a trust in God's methods of counseling are returning to the church. May we humbly persevere in promoting neuthetic counseling to the glory of God. Amen. Amen. Father God, we come to you, weak, weak vessels, recognizing our own inabilities. And yet, Father, we thank you that your spirit dwells within us, working with the same might and power that raised up Jesus from the grave. According to Ephesians, we thank you for that. We bless you for that. And Father, it is our desire to be sanctified. It is our desire to, in humility, acknowledge that we are sinners and not be so pride and stupid as to hide our sins and to hide ourselves from the kind of encouragement and accountability within the body, Father, that can be, that can be uh, enabling us to get over the hump and to begin to sail in our sanctification. Help each one of the people in this congregation to love neuthetic counseling, love the rebukes, the warnings, the encouragements, the, the advice that is given one to another within this congregation. Help us, Father, to have the humility, even when some uh, advice is off the wall, to take the element of truth and, Father, to, to not be offended 
over the things that maybe are misinterpretations, but help us to be a body committed to one another and uh, involved in this process of reaching others with the gospel of Jesus Christ and ministering that gospel in the lives of each other. We love you, Father, and we bless you for the privilege of serving you. In Christ's name, amen.